Well, the saints of Metro Bible in Grapevine, Texas, greet you. I always wanted to say that. It just sounds so good. <laughs> How do I sound? Am I okay? A little echoey? Okay. Uh, it, it still sounds funny to me to hear someone call me Rodney. Uh, it wasn't until I moved to Dallas five years ago that the elders pulled me aside and they said, would you mind going by something other than Rod? Maybe Rodney or Roddy or something. I said, sure, why? Well, we've got a Rod Brown at uh, Denton Bible Church who's in prison. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just too hard for us to explain the story. Rod Brown is now taking over the pastorate (laughs) of a Denton Bible Church plant. So, and I said, well, if you think that guy's bad, then you don't know me. So. Well, I am delighted to be with you here today. It is, uh, it's a privilege. Um, you may not know it, but, uh, but uh, Joy and I pray for this body of believers. Our hearts are knit with you. We know what it is like to um, be wholly devoted to a church plant. And as we said in Sunday school, to have seeds fall on hard soil sometimes. The only difference here is that I think Coloradoans, is that how you say it? Coloradoans? Y'all are honest. You a Christian? Nope. In Texas, everybody's a Christian. Christianity, Dallas Cowboys, it just goes together. (laughs) And And it's hard. I mean, you think it's difficult here, at least you know what you're dealing with in Dallas. Um, when someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian. Great, where do you go to church? Well, I go to fellowship. Well, fellowship's a church down the street of about 20,000. No accountability. I go to fellowship means that I went sometime in the last couple of years. And so it's sort of a conversation killer. So I am just delighted today to just, just share with you what the Lord has done uh, in our church life and in our hearts and how he is continually shaping us Uh, into the image of his son. And as the bride of Christ, he is making us ready on a daily basis. Judd just read 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at verses 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And um, I want to start by asking you a question. Pretend you had some some friends come to you. And uh, they were about to have a baby. And they said, you know, would would you mind just giving us some advice on parenting? Tell us what to expect. Tell us what things are important, what things we should concentrate on. Now, imagine yourself given the answer, well, parenting is a difficult job. It involves a lot of things. But but primarily, if you'll spend all of your energy focusing on instructing your children, forget affection, forget loving them, just instruct them their whole life. And, uh, And I promise you, you will be a successful parent. How many of us would agree with that? Not many. We, we would say, that's, that's tremendously unbalanced. Or imagine if you responded this way. The key to effective parenting is affection. Affection at all costs. Just love on your kids. Just spend time with them, love on them, care for them, affirm them. Don't ever instruct them. Don't ever tell them they've done wrong. Just affirm them. Just be affectionate. Well, that too would sound absurd, wouldn't it? And yet, do we know parents on both ends of the spectrum? Well, parenting, as Paul's going to uh, make the analogy, is very much like spiritual parenting. That we, as uh, given the Great Commission by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are called to make disciples. And yet, even in Bible churches, we've become imbalanced. And the art of parenting has become weighted on one side, either just instruction or just love without direction. And so what we want to look at today is is finding that balance. Seeing where we're deficient and saying, what does it mean, watch this phrase, to be church. Not to do church, not to attend church, but to be church. In the New Testament, 90% of the time, ecclesia, the church, is talking about the local church. Ek kaleo, called out once. That we, as those who have been called out of the world, what are we called to do? What are we called to be? Especially as we gather here. What does it look like? Is it something we just attend? Is it just all service? Is it all instruction? Is it all love? What is the balance? You see, the fact is is that while Bible churches have 
corrected a lot of errors. They've also created a lot. I mean, even in our terminology, it's affected. Think about these terms. Like when you say the word discipleship, discipleship has now morphed uh, for many of us into a term of varsity-level Christian. There's I'm a Christian and, ooh, I'm a disciple. I got a letter, big D, disciple. And, and, And discipleship is sitting down with someone and it's just taking that theological dump truck, backing it up. We're going to go through the chapter breaks of Romans today. But that's not discipleship. What about the word counseling? Counseling has morphed into a licensed professional counselor sitting across his desk from you and hearing your emotional and spiritual problems and affirming you or somehow trying to to mix Freud and the Bible, which doesn't work. And yet that's not what the Bible says counseling is. What's pastoring? Oh, pastoring. That's what we hired our pastor for. Judd, it probably involves something like marrying and burying, funerals, hospital visits. That's what a pastor does. And yet that's far from what the Bible talks about as pastoring. What about shepherding? Of course, most of us just throw up our hands there and say, I don't have sheep, so I don't know. And yet I would venture to say that discipleship, counseling, pastoring, and shepherding are all interchangeable terms and all reflect what the Great Commission is to be when it says to make disciples. So I'm excited about looking at this today because you know what? I need to preach this to myself. Our theme verse at Metro Bible is 1 Thess 2.8 and we've shortened it to imparting the word and imparting our lives. That if I can get my congregation to understand Every one of us is a shepherd. Every one of us is a pastor. Every one of us is a disciple-making discipler. That's what it means to do church. That's what it means to be church. So we're going to talk about this in light of spiritual parenting today because that's something we can relate to, right? We may not be able to understand what it means to be a pastor or a shepherd or a counselor or a discipler. Maybe our, our definitions are wrong. But when you say parenting, we kind of understand that, don't we? So let's look at it in light of what Paul talks about as spiritual parenting. Can I pray for us and we'll look at this text together? Gracious Father, as we bow our hearts before the throne this morning, we realize that we are weak and needy people. That in fact we can make all the excuses in the world, but we do what we want to do. And we do that which brings us the most pleasure, the most comfort. That oftentimes our indwelling sin, our flesh, takes front row rather than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we bow before the throne this morning, it is your throne that we bow before, not our own. I pray that as we rattle cages, that we will realize that growth comes through stretching. That the Bible says things about us that we would not say about ourselves, and yet it gives us the hope that we don't have to stay where we're at. Father, you're doing a mighty work in the valley here. This body of believers is growing in depth. Roots are being planted. People are learning their Bible. I pray that we would also impart our lives to one another. Bless this time. Bless our conversation. Give us hearts that are soft and ready. Give us ears that are open. And may you be glorified above all else. May I rightly divide the word of God. Keep me on the straight and narrow. And as I pray this morning, help me to disappear in the light of your word and your text. To your son be the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me begin by setting us in context. Uh, if you want to find out what's going on in First Thessalonians, you can always later look back at Acts 17. Talk about a guy who had growth struggles in church plants. Paul went to Thessalonica. We don't know exactly how much time he spent there. There's only three Sabbaths recorded. But it says he would go into the synagogue and he would begin reasoning with the people. He would begin teaching them. And and the word for teaching in Scripture is didaskalia. It's like a dialogue. And in a synagogue, they would say, does anyone have a word of exhortation? Can you imagine Paul being able to sit still? Oh, oh, I got something here. Let me, let me. And so he'd get up and then he'd just go to town. And what he would do is he would take the word of God and he would hold it up as a mirror. And he says, you guys are interpreting it this way, but in fact, the Bible means this. 
Just like Peter in Acts 2 when he says, the man you crucified was your Messiah. And it says they were cut to the quick. Well, Paul was run out of town. And his reputation was tarnished, as most theologians believe in this letter, because people started to speak badly of Paul. People in Thessalonica, there was a church that was, that was birthed, it was planted, and, uh, and so people started to besmirch his name. Yeah, that Paul, yeah. You know what, he's just like the rest of the traveling teachers that comes through. He didn't care about people. In fact, he didn't even rightly divide the word of God. He's just a showman like the rest. He's just one of these philosophers that comes in and can entertain. And so as Paul writes this letter, he's going to not only correct their understanding, but he's going to model what it means to be the church. He's going to model what it means to be a spiritual parent. That essentially we've been saved for a reason. You ever wonder why... uh, Have you done a baptism here, Judd? Have you done a baptism? Is it great that he didn't hold them under and send them on to glory? I mean, isn't that a good thing? But don't you ever wonder why? If we're saved, why don't we just go to heaven, right? Why are we here? I'm not advising that. I'm just... Church doesn't grow so quickly that way. (laughs) But why are we here? Okay, great, Lord, I'm saved. I get to spend eternity with you. Why am I still here? Why? Well, for a reason. We know we're to be ambassadors. We know we are to be multipliers. We know that we understand we are to be shepherds now. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And so Paul is going to say, let me show you what it means to live in Christ, to be part of the church. And he's going to use this metaphor of being parents. Because we can identify, right? I mean, do we love our children most of the time? Those of you who don't have teenagers, you love your children, right? Okay? Well, watch how he does this. If you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so, there's only two points. Impart, I'm exhorting us, impart the word and impart our lives. Now, impart the word, I trust that, uh, that it's being done well here. I know Judd well enough that he knows how to rightly divide the Word of God. And uh, what he doesn't know, I've seen his library. He can, he can find out the answers. The question is, is that permeating, permeating our everyday lives, our conversations? To preach is to, is the word is keruso, it's to herald, proclaim the truth. And we have a tendency to think, well, then that's what a pastor does. He gets up here and proclaims the truth. Absolutely. But don't we do the same? Don't we do the same in our everyday conversation, or shouldn't we do the same? Paul's going to say, absolutely. We don't preach to one who doesn't answer, but we reason with them, and we herald the word, and we herald the word as it's delivered. You know, if you think about it, our job is we're kind of like waiters. Our job is to get it from the kitchen to the table without spilling it. That's what we're called to do. We're called to deliver it without changing the recipe or without messing it up. So let's look at what it means to impart the word. Before I get there, let me just leave us with a quote by uh, Howard Hendricks, who just retired, what was he, like 91? That's, that's, that's almost a young guy in a male here, but, you know. 91, old guy. If there's one thing he really, really got right over the years, he said, look, there's two things God's going to take off this earth. God's word and God's people. Therefore, the most important thing we can do in life is pour God's word into God's people. Amen? Having that concept provides the foundation. Let's look at this, this first verse here in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness, circle that word, boldness, in our God, to speak to you the gospel of God amid such opposition. If we're called to impart the word and impart our lives, in order to be effective spiritual parents, and even you younger folks there, you know, the only people that are not spiritual parents are brand spanking new believers. Only once. I would venture to say that if you've been a believer for six months, you know something, you know enough that you can share with someone else. Okay? And he says here, that in order for us to impart the word, we've got to, number one, impart it boldly. Proclaim it boldly. Let's remember, Paul and Silas had just had their socks put in stocks. They had just been whipped. Remember, Paul was a citizen. He was not allowed to be beaten without reason. 
he had to be given a trial, and yet all this was cast aside, and he had endured some pain. I would be pretty depressed about now, wouldn't you? Plus, I'd also been run out of Thessalonica. And here it says they were proclaiming it with boldness amid much opposition. That word there is agon. It's where we get our word agony. It means struggle. That I wasn't just preaching to a crowd that was willing to listen. I was preaching and my very life was on the line. But I realized it was such an unction for me to preach the word of God. When he came to town, he didn't say... I'm going to put the Bible behind my back here and I'm going to send out postcards and I'm going to ask everyone what they would like in a church. Wouldn't that be great? Relevant music, great coffee, wonderful programs. Is that what Paul did? No. He opened up the Word of God and he proclaimed it boldly. Have you, within your circle, seen people push back against the Word of God because it says things about us that we don't like to hear? Did, did Paul say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to teach the Bible, but I'm just going to not talk about sin? I'm going to talk about why you don't need to hang around negative people? No. He went and he proclaimed it with boldness amid much opposition. He didn't avoid using the name of Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't caustic. But he was clear and he was bold. And he taught the main truths. You know, one of the problems today in Christendom, in evangelicalism, which is our camp, is that we preach secondary truths. We do all these wonderful series about this, that, and the other, and we sort of set aside the gospel. What is being taught is not necessarily untrue. It's not, necessarily, it's not the most important, though. When I was in Ireland, um, 90% of all the beer sold is Guinness. Judd, can I use a beer, beer illustration? We're in Colorado, right? Not a problem. Okay. Anywhere in Ireland, you see signs, it's like Coca-Cola, it says Guinness. Now, if you've ever seen Guinness beer, it's like 30-weight motor oil. It's really, really thick, and that's what everyone drinks over there. Now, what's interesting is the advertisement for Guinness beer in Ireland is a guy with his shirt sleeve rolled up, he's picking up a big ox cart, and he's got his donkey in the ox cart, and it says, it's good for you. Beer is good for you. Now, here's the thing. Is that true? Because even in Ireland you need truth in advertising. Well, there's a shred of truth in it. You see, what makes Guinness beer black is the iron in it. And so in hospitals, they give Guinness beer to anemic patients. That's the shred of truth that they advertise everything regarding Guinness. Is it true? Well, yeah, I guess it's true, but it's not the main truth. Paul, when it says he proclaimed it boldly, wasn't a volume issue. He wasn't saying, hey, you've got to leave, you've got to believe, you've got to... No. It was he delivered it correctly as the authors wrote it. That's what it means to proclaim it boldly. He was clear. He was concise. It was getting it there in the correct fashion. Joe and I used to, uh, when I was in seminary, design and import handcrafted furniture. And uh, one of our good markets was Colorado. Shipping stuff up here is tough. And so we would build these massive crates with two-inch nails and two-by-fours. And we would ship it up to, uh, and there was always an interline carrier that had to go up the mountains. I think it was called Rack. Everyone called it Wreck because it never got there in one piece. All I wanted to hear when the client got it was not how beautiful the furniture was or how happy they were. I wanted to hear one thing. What did I want to hear? It arrived in one piece. That's how we're to impart the Word of God. It's got to arrive as it was sent. When we proclaim it boldly, it has to be clear. What does that mean for us? Let's talk practically. That means while not all of us are preachers, all of us do private preaching. We do counseling. We admonish one another. We encourage one another. We help one another. We listen to one another. We counsel. That means we don't shy away from terms like repentance, turning from your sin. We don't shy away from commitment. We don't shy away from the name Jesus Christ, the bloody cross. We don't shy away from these things. That's what it means to proclaim it boldly. But we're not only supposed to proclaim it boldly, we're to explain it sincerely. Look at verse 3. Or impurity by way of deceit. See, the charge against Paul was, you know what? You're giving us some half-truths. There's ulterior motives. This, this has the connotation of sexual immorality. 
They're saying, hey, Paul, I, I, I think you got a sideline going on. I think you want to be a famous preacher because it plays well with the ladies. I'm serious. Traveling teachers were known for the immorality. This is, this is a shot across the bow. And they're saying, Paul, you're not sincere. You don't love the body. You just came here and gave us a good speech so that you could become popular and get your way with whatever. Popularity, you name it. That, that phrase, by way of deceit, means to, to decoy or to bait a hook. Paul says, I'm not a charlatan. There's no ulterior motive. This is not a shell game. I gave you the word straight up. I proclaimed to you the word of God. I also told you what to expect. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly, isn't it? Salvation brings eternity, but your time here is probably going to be full of some trials, right? Is it easy to be a Christian in Colorado? It's tough, isn't it, sometimes? All you have to do is walk around this school and what kind of things you see on the walls. There's a lot of earth worship in there. you imagine what it's like for the kids today? Paul says, I proclaimed it boldly and I explained it sincerely that this is truth. Times are going to be tough. What does James say? Consider it all what? Joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I tell you, there's a lot of folks out there imparting the word, and they're only telling the good news, and they're not telling the tough news, are they? Or they're trying to talk about all the benefits, but they're not talking about sin. A good friend of ours, Judd and and Mel's, is a guy named Greg Travis. He's a missionary in Argentina. I said, Greg, how's it going? He's planting a church down there in City Bell. He said, man, it's tough. I said, what do you mean? He says, I've got to get people lost before I can get them saved. Everyone in Argentina basically thinks they're a really good person. But sin is just poor judgment. Maybe it's a mistake. We're also, as we impart the word, to glorify God. And this kind of takes care of the other ones, doesn't it? When we focus on glorifying God, we don't have a fear of man. Look at verse 4. Just as we've been improved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men. I don't do it for man's favor. I don't do it for kudos. But God, I do it to glorify God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. That word entrusted there, it's the picture of a steward. He says, I've been, in 1 Timothy it says, take this treasure that's been entrusted to you and deliver it safely. We have a saying at Metro Bible, not on our watch. You see, there's a truth that all organizations go apostate, don't they? It's hard to find a church over 50 years old that's stayed the course, right? And so we have a saying to constantly remind us, not on our watch, not on our watch will things go south. But you know what? We realized that wasn't enough because that only covers my generation. And so we added another phrase to it. Not on our watch and not on the watch after mine. Because I can control that by the men and women we disciple now. Why is that important? Because if we shift from glorifying God and imparting the word to glorifying ourselves, we will water down the word, we'll exalt man, we'll do it for ulterior motives, and we won't do it sincerely. And Paul says, look here, I don't do this as to please men. I do it as God is my witness. He's examining our hearts. Paul was not concerned about pleasing the crowds. He didn't play to the grandstands. In fact, 2 Corinthians says that the people considered him kind of a slouch. They said his, his letters are weighty, but his speech is contemptible. Let me translate to modern day. He's not that good of a preacher. He's kind of boring. He's not excited. His presence, you know, There's a a second century letter that describes Paul. It says he was bow-legged, hunched over, bald, and had bad eyesight. This guy does not have presence in the pulpit. And he said, you know what? That's not what I'm here for. In fact, all the better, because no one can look at me and say, I want to follow him. I want to follow the Word of God. So let's talk. Let's just recap here for a second. If we are called to be spiritual parents, is there an aspect that we need to be clear on our instruction? Absolutely. We proclaim it boldly. We explain it sincerely. And we do it for God's glory. Is it going to be tough? Yeah. 
Are you going to have people push back? Sure. I had a guy tell me recently in my congregation, now you got this discipleship thing all wrong, wrong, Rod. You just need to just speak the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit work. Great. How's it working for you? How's it working for you not giving of your life, not pouring into someone else, not bearing one another burdens, not rejoicing with those who rejoice? Do you like just being able to say, here's a verse, be warm and be filled? The guy's using it as an excuse. Why? Because he doesn't want to be held accountable. What's the overarching deal? He doesn't love the body. He doesn't love the body. Paul says, I don't care what's being said about me. I love you guys. I didn't do it for fame, and I didn't do it for fortune. Look at verse 5 again. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is my witness. That word is literally a cloak for greed, a mask of deception. He said, I didn't pass any plates. I was working as a tent maker. I wasn't going to take anything from you guys. You're saying I did this for greedy reasons? Come on. I love you guys. Verse 6, he also didn't do it for the world's fame, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or for others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. When we proclaim the word of God, can we start to doing it, not just pastors for our own ego, to hear our own self pontificate, to always be right rather than righteous? Yeah. And what happens? Well, we see it every day in the news, don't we? So-and-so famous pastor fell because of immorality or fell because of greed. And we look and we say, how could he have fallen from such great a height? And you realize he didn't fall from a great height. He'd been stepping down the whole way. And if you look at his preaching, you'll see how it got more and more watered down because that's what allowed him to get into sin. Paul says, I never did it. I was faithful. I was faithful to the point of being run out of town. Let me ask you a question today. Are you faithful enough here at Metro Bible, at Metro Bible, at Eagle Bible, to herald the Word of God in relationship, in season and out of season, knowing that you will lose friends? Knowing that your reputation will be besmirched, knowing that you won't get that promotion, do you love God enough and love God's people enough that you're willing to do that? Paul's setting the standard here. He said, if you're a believer, this is what it looks like. If you want to be a spiritual parent, which means Christians are spiritual parents, here's what it looks like. This is a tall order. I look at this and, I, and I'm thinking, this is hard. You're asking me to proclaim it boldly, exhort it correctly, be sincere about it. He uses this phrase in this, in this exhortation. Uh, this, this word exhortation, in fact, means to, to walk along with someone to speak into their life. He says, I, I love that person so much that even if they reject me, I'm willing to be obedient to God and love them. And th isn't that the first two commandments? Love God and love others. But if I was to end the sermon there, I think it would be imbalanced, don't you? And yet a lot of us at Bible churches are like, rah, rah, we're all about doctrine, we got that covered, great. We're going to let the pastor do the pastoring, the shepherds do the shepherding, the licensed professional counselor do the counseling. I just need to know my doctrine and move on. Right? Let's be honest with ourselves. That's where it ends a lot. But that's not enough. Let's go to our second section. Impart our lives. You see, if you impart truth without love... It's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It means nothing. It's more about being right. And yet we've seen the swing pendulum go to the other way, haven't we? Let's look at this imparting our lives. Verse 7. Paul says, It's not enough that I delivered you the unvarnished truth, and I was willing to take a beating for it. Verse 7. But we proved to be gentle, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. You know, there's a lot of people that bag on Paul and say, you know what, he's just a cocky Jew. He's just kind of harsh. You know, apparently he wasn't married, and so he just had bad delivery. And then I read a verse like this, and I say, my goodness, this guy loved 
the people of God. We prove to be gentle. That, that word means literally with warmth. That we were warm among you. Like a nursing mother. Think about that picture. What does a nursing mother give? She gives nutrients. She gives the full prescription strength of what's needed, just like the Word. But how does she give it? With extreme tenderness. Extreme love. She gets up in the middle of the night. She stays up. She's with the colicky baby. She burps the child. She changes the child 15 times in a day. She's gentle. My mother's with me here today. I'm 42 years old. She still says when I travel, would you call me when you get there? Because, you know, mothers don't only live for their kids, they're willing to die for them too, aren't they? Paul uses this picture and he says, I didn't just give you the truth, although that's important. I gave it to you like a nursing mother. I was gentle. Verse 7 again, I was also among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Being an effective spiritual parent is being among the flock. You ever heard that phrase, they smell like sheep? That's what we require of our small group leaders. As I'm interviewing them and asking them, I say, great, you know your theology. Do you love the body? Oh yeah, Rod, I love the body. That's great. Are you willing to be among them? Are you willing to smell like sheep? Are you going to be around them so much that you take on the smell of what sheep smell like? And let's face it, we're all sheep and we all stink. We do. I mean, look at the picture in the Bible. Sheep get stuck. Sheep run away. Sheep are just dumb. You ever seen a sheep pen? It's low. Do you know why? Because in a thunderstorm, they climb on one another because they're scared and they smother one another. Sheep have to be cared for. And the thing that we require out of our shepherds, if we want everyone in the body to become shepherds, then I want my shepherds to be among the sheep. We said it in Sunday school this morning. We won't even let an elder be on the board if he's on the board of a parachurch ministry or has another ministry. It's not that those things are bad. It's that this is a full-time job. I want them among the sheep. We have a saying that I, from the time they go to bed at night and the first thing they wake up in the morning, I want them to be thinking about their sheep. Now that also includes their family because their family's sheep, but I want the church to be on their mind. Why? Because Hebrews 13, 17 says, we're going to give an account. We're going to stand before God. And he's going to say, hey, how did the Quins do? They were in your charge. They were in your care. How's that family doing? Uh, I'm sorry, Lord. I don't, I don't know who they are. I remember seeing their name. Oh, uh, yeah, I met him at that visitor's luncheon. He said, is that watching over their souls? Your job as a shepherd is to get them from point A to point B without the sheep dying. You want to feed the sheep. You want to know the sheep. You want to help that sheep grow. How do you do that? You've got to be with them. You've got to be among them. At Metro, we, we require two things of our members. And I preach it to them long before they ever go through membership. I said, look, there's just two things. We've got a lot of great programs. We've got an institute. We've got missions. None of that is essential. We want you here when the body of Christ worships. We want you with the body. And we want you part of a small group. And they look at me and they're like, well, why? And I say, because it's not fair for us to preach to you if we can't pastor you. It's not fair for me to yell at you if I can't comfort you. Okay? It's not fair for me to impart the word if I can't impart my life. Because you know what? I mean nothing here. Oh, you may like the preaching. You may say, good word, pastor. really enjoy that. But... You know what really counts? When people are on their deathbed, they don't look at you and say, remember that sermon you did on July 25th? Oh, that was great. They say, thanks for coming to the hospital when my mom passed away and I didn't know how to deal with it. Thanks for sitting with me all night when my son was thrown into jail and I didn't know how to respond. Thanks for just being my friend, just weekly grabbing a cup of coffee with me and letting me struggle in a safe place saying, you know what, Pastor, I just didn't understand on Sunday. I just don't get it. You're saying things that are making me uncomfortable. You see, it's not fair for me to be able to throw that out there where you can't respond unless I'm willing to spend time with you and say, share with me your concerns. 
Paul is saying, I'm that guy. And we all need to be that guy. We need to proclaim the word of God, but we need to be there for him in relationship. And relationship is not always affirming, is it? Like with our kids. Sometimes it's great job, I'm real proud of you. Sometimes, hey, you're out of line. Hey, your attitude stinks. Hey, you sassed your mama. It's both. We talked about 1 Thess 5.14 this morning. We shepherd based on the attitude of the sheep. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. That's hard. Shepherding is a very active process. And it requires being among them. One other just practical note, when we interview our small group leaders and our elders, I think I mentioned it this morning, we'll have a page of biblical qualifications. Can you think of someone? Manage your own household well, uh, not given to much wine, you know, not contentious, prudent. So we go through that. Those are the theological qualifications, the behavioral qualifications. Does he know his Bible well too? And then I look at it and I say, let's talk about the relational. I ask that question again, do you love the body? Oh yeah, I love the body. How do you relate to them? Oh, well, Joe and I have a great time on Wednesdays. How's he growing? What are his struggles? Well, you know, I don't know. Loving the, mo- the body means doing what is best for them, helping them grow. It's like a good coach. None of us will grow as athletes unless we're pushed by a coach, unless we're encouraged by a coach, unless the coach is running with us. There is no better coach, especially if you track stars, than a guy who guts it up loves his athletes enough that he's willing to run backwards and yell at you while you're sprinting. That's a guy who says, I'm out here with you. I'm saying some tough things because I love you. And he's also the guy that sits by you when you collapse. And the guy that carries you back to the locker room. It is an art. And yet it's not an art that's left up to Judd or Eric or Andrew. We're all called to be spiritual parents. And can I just share with you, this is not taught in seminary. No one taught me this until I started studying the Word of God and older guys came up to me and said, Brown, I know you can preach and teach. Can you pastor? Can you pastor? Because you know preaching is an hour a week. Pastoring is another 50, 60, 70. I realize that not all of us can put in that kind of time because we have to work. But what we can't make up for in quantity, we can make up for in quality. It can become priority. Let's talk about what shepherding is not. In verse 7 it says that I need to be among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Shepherding is not Facebook. It's not texting. It's not even really email. Now, all those things are good. All those things can be supplemental. Picture a shepherd. A shepherd is with the sheep. Sometimes it's picking off cuckleburrs. Sometimes it's stroking a coat. Can I just make an aside here? I had the privilege last night to spend a couple hours with your elders. They love you. It it comes out in their conversation. They love this body. They are committed to you. Be encouraged. These are the guys you want to look to. While you may not aspire to be an elder, you want to look at them and say, I want to learn to shepherd like them. And not just them, but their wives. I turned to the gals last night and I said, Ladies, do you realize that you are pastors? That these men can't effectively pastor the women in the flock. You're called to pastor the women in the flock. And you're called to pour into women who can help you pastor. Can I share with you practically what that looks like? We have the entire body, as I mentioned, in small groups. Each small group leader is responsible for folks in his small group. And his wife is responsible for the gals in her small group. Because there's no way I can pastor them all, but I can pastor eight or ten guys. And as I'm talking to them, they're talking to those in their flock. And people don't slip through the cracks. And guess what? When someone's hurting, we hear about it. And that's not rocket science. That's just being a shepherd. Let's look at this one last term on imparting our lives. Verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you. Paul says, I was affectionate. 
But you may be like me and you say, Rod, I'm not a touchy-feely kind of guy. And that's okay. Because that word affection means to connect with someone. Men, even if you're not a touchy-feely kind of guy like I'm not, we can connect, can't we? We can meet people where they're at on their playing field and we can connect. That term is only used one time in the New Testament. It's right here. But we see it outside of the New Testament in Greek culture. Do you know where we see it? We see it inscribed, archaeologists have found, on tombstones. And parents are talking about their children who have died before them. And it talks about the affection they have for those who are gone. That is what is required of us as believers. Mel mentioned it last night. The New Testament is full of the one another's of Scripture. That because we are not persecuted now, we live in an age of consumer Christianity that we're not knit together. People don't talk about this as being a spiritual family. We don't divorce our brothers and sisters. We keep short accounts. We get along. Yes, we rub on one another, but we forgive. Why? The very hallmark of our faith is forgiveness. Watch Paul bring it all together in verse 8. We were well pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. He just sums it up. I don't know what's being said about me, but I loved you as a model of the Great Commission. You ever think about the Great Commission? We're called to make disciples in two ways. What are they? Teaching them and baptizing them. Teaching is the vertical aspect. We're imparting the Word of God. You know what baptism is? It's not only an outward sight of an inward change. In the first and second and third centuries, it was your entrance into a community of believers. When you as a Greek pagan got baptized, your family was disowning you and you were saying, I'm with them, the church. And they welcomed you in and they cared for you. That's why you see things like deacons take care of widows and orphans, minister to those among your flock. That is their membership. They were saying, I'm with you. The Great Commission is imparting the word through teaching and imparting your lives by putting people in community. It's the vertical and the horizontal. It's who we are. Turn to a text in Acts 2.42. I want to finish with this picture because I like word pictures and they help me understand. Acts 2.42, and I'm going to read verse 46 as well. 2.42 would be like our worship service. It would be like imparting the word says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Is that what goes on here today? Have we had some fellowship? Amen. Have we had the apostles' teaching? Absolutely. Straight out of 1 Thessalonians. Have we had a time of prayer? Yeah. And are we going to break bread here in a minute? That's worship. That's coming together and imparting the word. Now look at verse 46. Look at imparting our lives. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house as they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We gather for worship and equipping and we scatter for life on life, encouragement and evangelism. They were coming together for worship and you know what? They were going back and they were having small groups and they were having people over for dinner and they were talking about their faith and there was sweet koinonia, sweet fellowship. Paul's just explaining the Great Commission. He's just saying, in case you misunderstand, to be a Christian means to be a spiritual parent. Can I leave us with just a couple of practical things before we approach the Lord's table? Because we can get fired up about this stuff, but unless we understand what it means in our everyday life, it's hard. I have to hear it. I need the shoe leather. How does this go? Well, first of all, we have to realize, first of all, we're all pastors. Within our circle of influence, unless you're a brand new believer, we're all pastors. Secondly, where does it start? It starts in the home. Moms, pastor your kiddos. Dads, pastor your kiddos. Dads, pastor your wife, pastor your family. We pastor in concentric circles. But it doesn't end there, does it? We have a saying at Metro that 
Ministry is never at the expense of family. And family is never an excuse to not do ministry. So our next concentric circle is the church. What does that practically mean? Well, moms, you may have four kids at home to take care of, like my wife. And you may not be able to get out. But you know what? You can do what my wife does. She has someone over. Hey, come help me in the kitchen for a little bit. Hey, I've got a full laundry. Hey, let's talk while we watch the kids. We can do that. We can make time. We can give up a little TV. We can give up a little this, that, and the other. And we can make time. The great thing is you can do it from your home. That's where the Christians did it. Men, you're very busy during the week. You can make time. Do what I do. You know, a lot of times I have to multitask. Hey, I've got to catch a workout. Will you come with me and work out with me? Hey, I've got to run an errand into Dallas. Can I pick you up? I'll buy you lunch. It's spiritually parenting. This also means committing yourself to the body. In order for you to become an effective shepherd, you need to put yourselves under the authority of shepherds. You need to learn from men who are just a step or two ahead of you. When I come to you today, it's with all humility because I don't know any more than Judd. In fact, I know a lot less. I'm one step and a half, two steps ahead of him, just by experience, not because anything I've done. It's literally, as I mentioned, one beggar sharing with another beggar where the food is. That's what shepherding is. Because you may sit here today and say, I don't know the Bible. I, I don't, I'm not good with people. I don't know this stuff. Get better. Learn your Bible. Learn to get better with people. You don't have to be an expert in order to do it. you just got to be a step ahead of them. Thirdly, create a culture of transparency. Be willing to let others get in your kitchen. You know what I mean by that? Younger folks do. Be willing to let people call you out on things. And also be willing to call others out. Lovingly. Ephesians 4.15 Speak the truth in love. Discipleship is not dumping information onto one another. And I know that some of this is probably going to rattle some cages. But be a good Berean. Go back. Check the Word of God. I think you'll find that Christianity is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's you now have a mission. You've been left here for a reason. And it's to be a spiritual parent. It's a call upon your life. And spiritual parenting has eternal results. Amen? Nothing you're doing today will compare to this. I promise you. Your cars, your business, your relationships, nothing will outlast that unless it is part of you pouring the Word of God into the people of God. Can I pray for us? Father, as we approach your table... I pray that you would help us to do so with sincerity. I pray that you would help us to remember it is a looking back and it is a looking forward. Father, it is remembering what you have done for us and what we are called to do while we wait for your return. Father, I'm going to read a passage here to remind us. And then we'll call the men forward to pass out the bread. and then the cup. I'm going to ask Eric to come up and pray for the bread after we pass it out and Andrew to pray for the cup. I pray, Lord, that before we do this that you would help us to confess any sin that is on our hearts that might be breaking fellowship with you. And Father, if there is one among us today who is not a believer, I pray that he would not dishonor your table by partaking of these elements, but that he would watch a silent sermon as redeemed rebels partake of the symbolic grace that you have given us. The bread and the wine don't mean anything in and of themselves, but they are symbolic of your body and your blood. Father, you have so graciously regenerated us. You have taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. You were willing to die for us. May we be willing to die for you. And Father, if there are parents here who don't know of their children's salvation, I pray that you would help them to take this opportunity to explain it and to let the elements pass until they are absolutely sure of their child's conversion. Father, we thank you that we can gather, as it says in Acts 2.42, for the apostles' teaching, for the breaking of bread, for the fellowship and for prayer. And I pray that as we go out of here this week, that it would be our goal to pastor others as we have been pastored in Christ's name. Just take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 27, and I just want to read briefly before.
we ask that the elements be passed out. I think it's easy to sanitize what happened on the cross. And a regular reading of the crucifixion is important not only to understand the physical pain that he endured, but the tremendous wrath that he endured from his father. Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to begin in verse 33, and I just want you to just focus on what was done for us. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put upon the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were being crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour lime sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things which were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Could I ask the men to pass out the elements?